0: afternoon everybody and welcome to Have We Got Planning News for You. Um, You will have noticed that our usual host is not here, uh, last spotted in the Waverley Local Plan Examination where I suspect he may still be at this very moment but he's hoping to join us. But most importantly uh, a a welcome to our guest for this week Matthew Spry, Senior Director at Litchfields and we will be discussing all things related to housing and uh, the ONS uh, statistics uh, about which Litchfields have plenty to say and of course what a week, what a week to have Matt on the show given uh, all things political including um, the race for the Tory leadership and the lovely Liz Truss and her comments about Stalinist Housing numbers. We look forward very much to Sasha's interview with Matt about that very topic. Um, but meanwhile, let's start um, with some formal introductions. So, Matt, can I just ask you um, where you are speaking to us from and what is your chosen theme for the week? Uh, well, uh,
1: good evening, Marion. Uh, hello, everyone, and uh, thanks for inviting me on. Um, so, where am I? Um, I'm in the London office of Litchfields um, which is in the square mile, um, roughly between the Tower of London and the Lloyds building, so two uh, sort of fairly iconic built structures of uh, slightly different eras. Um, in terms of the theme, um, my theme is uh, Kermit the Frog. Uh, I did actually struggle slightly uh, to think of something. Um, I don't have a physical object with me, so those of a certain age will hopefully know uh, who I'm referring to. Um, Two reasons for selecting Kermit. Um, First, if you were a child of the 70s and 80s like me, then The Muppet Show was probably quite an important cultural uh, reference point, and I'm still deep down quite fond of its anarchic style and and humour. But also, and probably relevant for this evening, I happen to think that Kermit would make a perfect planner or close to a perfect planner. So he has to work with and coordinate multiple different characters who are often unreasonable when in conflict with each other. He takes his responsibilities um, seriously, tries to remain calm, and composed and not lose control, tries to be positive when it's all falling apart. uh, And most importantly, he's very happy when things go well for others to take credit.
0: Well, that's fantastic, Matt. And what are you drinking?
1: Um, I'm just on the water, I'm afraid, because I am barely coherent most of the time. And after a drink, I'm absolutely hopeless.
0: Well, we know that's not true because many of us have uh, uh, met you in the context of examinations and appeals. Um, but so I salute you. Cheers. I'm also in the square mile um, in the offices of, of town legal. And maybe this is where I should turn into uh, Miss Piggy. And of course, Miss Piggy had a terrible crush, <laughs> as I recall, on Kermy, on Kermy the frog. Anyway, it's great to have you with us. So, Chris, you're next up on, on my screen. Where are you? You've got an interesting picture behind you.
2: I have, Mary, I have. I'm on Tresco. It's that time oh, of the nice. year where I uh, try to get out of the heat, and that was well-timed, wasn't it? And uh, I don't know if you can see out there. That's the view I've got out there. Uh, that's pretty pleasant, isn't it? Yeah, um, lovely. I'm here. Uh, my, my daughter and wife have got sports commitments, so they couldn't make it this week. So, instead, I'm here... With my son and three of his best mates. And we are having a ball. It'd be fair to say, there isn't a towel that's been picked up off the floor. There is no talk of salad. Uh, we are having back, <laughs> back, back to back barbecues. Um, and yeah, we're having a great time. Uh, and um, yeah, difficult to get something about Kermit on a small island in, in the Atlantic. But I've got some bacon. We never <laughs> can.
0: <laughs> your imagination never ceases to amaze us well i move on to the king of the north mr tucker we can see what you have behind you how are you
3: uh, i'm very well thank you mary uh it's amazing what you can buy on amazon for <laughs> next day delivery when you get a message from uh, from sasha and matt at uh, at 10 o'clock at night so i have kermit the frog suitably hung up there uh mm-hmm. torturing him as i would with any good planner Um, And in terms of drinks, uh, I couldn't find anything frog related, surprisingly enough. Um, But I have found this, which is called, I don't know if you can see it, called called Muted. So at least it's amphibian related, which was given to me by Tyler Grange last Christmas. So, cheers.
0: Again, wonderful, wonderful imagination. Sasha, how are you? I'm very well, Mary. Thank you very much. And I I think
4: we should, um, we have to, we've achieved, we've got various accolades in our history. We have to acknowledge that we're now in the grand company of the chair of PIBA. So we have to acknowledge Paul's coronation. <laughs> Quite right, too. Quite right, too. Um, and I am currently in Oxfordshire. Now, I, I have failed. I'm drinking out of my favourite cup, Southern Railways Cup, which I got in East Sussex on a site visit. I can't remember that. Was it the Cuckoo Line? Someone will tell me. Um, and I've got, I've got, I'm afraid I couldn't have Kermit. I've got his cousin. I've, I've delved long and hard into the children's bedrooms, expecting them to have a Kermit. And I found this, which is an authentic frog that I think we bought once in <laughs> South Africa. So it's his, it's a, his cousin. Uh, if we had a biologist here, tell me the DNA relationship with Kermit. But trust me. <laughs> how wonderful.
0: And, and uh, you'll, you'll be glad to know that it's the Cuckoo Trail. Thank uh, you. OK, uh, well, thank you. So um, I should also have have mentioned in the introductory remarks, don't forget um, listeners to make a contribution to a a charity, either uh, of your choice or to in particular um, shelter is one of our very special uh, charities. And that seems very appropriate for today's show. So we're going to move on. And in fact, I'm going to kick off with my um, case summary. And I'm going to kick off by talking to you all about a case involving an appeal in Poole. And the proposal here, thank you very much, Rob. So we can see that this was an appeal um, dealt with by David Wildsmith, very experienced inspector. It involved uh, the Thistle Hotel. Uh, down on the quay in the town centre in Poole and the proposal was to demolish the building and as you can see replace it with a mixed use scheme of five buildings including um, 222 or thereabouts residential units. The site was not only in the town centre but also in the um, conservation, the town centre conservation heritage area and again just to set a bit more further scene there was a 4.1 uh, housing year sh- supply, and therefore there was a shortfall of 423 units. So, on the face of it, this scheme could have made up half of that shortfall. And the issue issues in this scheme centred, in particular, about the impact of the proposal on the character of and the appearance of the conservation area, but also the wider townscape. And the first issue the inspector had to deal with was the role of the existing building in the conservation area. The existing building was a part two, part three story, uh, built in 1979, and it lay between two story residential development and uh, commercial development, um, or mixed development, in the uh, East Street Key area in Poole. and Dolphin Keys, as a series of six to eight story buildings which were said by, in fact, agreed by all parties to dominate the area, described as not a very successful development with unlit spaces and uninviting public space, uh, public areas. And the inspector considered that the, the hotel site was effectively a transition, and that um, where the appellant suggested it had a negative impact on the conservation area, the inspector thought that the building was neutral, but the large car parking area uh, w- was, was in fact, um, the only negative aspect of it. And of the five buildings, one in particular, Block D, uh, the inspector was unhappy about. Uh, he was unhappy about the um, scale of it, the siting of it, and he regarded that as unacceptable. And uh, overall, he came to the view that the proposal would have, a less, would have less than substantial harm to the character and appearance of the conservation area, which he, had, he assessed to be more harm than the appellants did. Um, but in his view, the harm was in the low to medium range. But interestingly, he found that there would be um, significant harm to the wider townscape of Poole. And he gave a significant weight to that. So that was over and above and quite distinct from the impact on the conservation area. And there were also four trees uh, within the um, uh, location, uh, which made a positive contribution to the area, which as a result of the five buildings would need significant and regular pruning. And the the growth of those trees was described as as being inhibited and cramped in the future. And so that was another negative. So there was a number of town centre and character um, and conservation area policies that the proposal did not comply with. There was also an interesting argument about a review mechanism uh, for affordable housing. Um, This scheme could stand no affordable housing. That was agreed. The issue was, um, was it legitimate for the 106 to have a early stage Uh, review clause if the development wasn't started within 30 months, and a review clause, um, a late stage um, mechanism payment. And the appellant said it wasn't reasonable because local plan policy didn't stipulate such a clause. There was an SPD dealing with affordable housing, and that SPD um, was um, mentioned in particular that um, 106 obligations would be used to ensure that developers didn't delay in the provision of affordable housing uh, to wait for market uplift. And it also talked about the use of overage clauses. And the inspector felt that the fact that the SPD uh, referenced user um, overage clauses was effectively an overage clause, he said, was another mechanism to achieve what a review mechanism would achieve, and therefore it was entirely legitimate to have uh, said review mechanisms in the 106, which uh, the appellants had indeed put in the 106. So he didn't find a them on that issue, but overall, although he gave um, uh, significant weight to the housing, he also um, tempered that weight because he took the view that a policy-compliant development could also provide a significant positive contribution to housing. And so uh, he, interestingly, applying uh, the conservation area test, um, disapplied the uh, tilted balance on account uh, of the harm he found to the conservation area. But then he went on, nevertheless, to apply the tilted balance and still found that the harms uh, outweighed the benefits and so he refused the appeal and so um, interesting interesting case right I, I move on and now Chris I turn to you and you're going to tell us all about an appeal in Hampton Court and I remember this site well because I got involved in a court case uh, which followed the first granted planning permission on the Jolly Boatman site are you there Chris over to you and your appeal.
2: I am. I'm just handling four 11 year old boys at the same time. (laughs) Okay. Are they
0: going to give us the case summary?
2: (laughs) They can do, but at the moment they're just getting some food. (laughs) 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 They wandered in and discovered, guys, could you just go out for a minute? Would that be all right? Yeah, take that, (laughs) Uh, take anything. They just got the. Yeah. Okay. They're just taking the beer. Uh, (laughs) Sorry about this. Try and remain professional at all times. Um, Right. So this is an interesting case. If um, I just say, actually, Mary, your case, very interesting about the review mechanism, I must say. That applies to lots of cases that I've been thinking about recently. Um, So I've got a very interesting case about Hampton Court Palace, which is um, uh, the Jolly Boatman uh, adjacent to the Hampton Court station. Hampton Courtway, East Mosley, and you can sit Mosley, and you can see that's in Elmbridge, which we're all very interested in with their emerging local plan seeking to stop a lot of developments or nearly all developments in the Greenbelt. Um, now, the position is um, that uh, this is a proposal for 97 homes, a hotel retail units and some class e but it's its proximity to hampton court palace which is particularly important if we um go down to uh, the main issues that the inspector was concerned with um you see it was character and appearance of the area the effect of the proposal on the historic environment the other two issues the issue of the affordable housing and the proposal on the highway network. Uh, were resolved uh, at the time of the inquiry. Now, what's very interesting, if we go to paragraph 10, is that there was actually already an extant planning permission on the site for mixed-use development, including residential, uh, hotel and care home. Um, But as you can see at the inquiry, the appellants accepted the extant scheme would not be viable under current market conditions. So the principle had been established, but their case was that the current proposal wasn't viable and so they were not relying on the fallback. I've got a couple of cases. I've got a CMC tomorrow where that is part of our case about a greenbelt development, which uh, is unviable in its current form. Okay, so uh, if we go forward to the issue of the character and appearance and uh, have a look at paragraph 28, uh, the design of the proposal um, was criticized by some for not being sufficiently eye-catching or innovative Uh, And he agreed that this is not a design that seeks to make an assertive architectural statement. However, in this case, I don't regard that as a negative. I consider the design would result in a calm, well-ordered scheme with sufficient presence to hold its own in the street scene. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? We can rely on this inspector for some very interesting observations. So it didn't need to be sufficiently eye-catching or innovative. Uh, It just needed to hold its own in the street scene. And on that basis, he didn't find a problem with that. That's character and appearance. If we move to the historic environment and paragraph uh, 30, look at that. Those are all the things that had to be dealt with in the case. Hampton Court Palace, scheduled monument and grade one listed building. Hampton, I've dragged my kids around there. Hampton Court Palace, registered park and gardens. And look at that long list. Now, the amazing thing about this is that... um, the inspector concludes there would be no harm at all. A main argument seemed to be that the land, the site was uh, open and that had historical connections to when it was a park. But he wasn't buying any of that because what he said was, look, this area has evolved, including the station, the arrival of trains, the tourism, the suburbanization. And as a consequence, that site is part of a history associated with Hampton Court Palace, not all harking back to Henry VIII. Henry's can be very difficult in my experience, but not uh, not in um, this case. Don't go back to that historical context. Um, you just need to look at how the area has evolved. And that's a really interesting observation, I think, that it's not always people saying, oh, well, this used to be something, you know, 100 years ago, 500 years ago. Look at how it's evolved. And on the basis of that, on the basis that the development was uh um holding its own in the street scene but not being overly dominant he came to the conclusion there was no harm to any of those listed heritage assets and as a consequence it complied with the development plan so uh, I think we've got a list of um the appearances uh well done to uh, Rupert Warren and his team uh Chris Miele there's a name we know quite well uh, from lots of these appeals and um well done to everybody involved. A really interesting case about heritage and the fact that just because you can see it doesn't mean it's harmful.
0: Indeed. Thank you so much. And uh, now we are going to go to the Court of Appeals' recent decision in relation to all things um, nutrient, nu- uh, in, in terms of nutrients. And of course, how apposite uh, of this, bearing in mind yesterday's written ministerial statement. Viewers, I'm sure you've uh, all clocked that one. So, Paul, over to you.
3: Uh, Thank you, Mary. So this is uh, a cause of appeal decision decision by the president of tribunals, uh, the judge formerly known as Lord Justice Limblom, which uh, allowed an appeal against the decision, sorry, uh, upheld an appeal, forgive me, dismissed the appeal upholding the judgment of Mr Justice Jay. So agreeing with the High Court, it's been a long day, I've been at inquiry, what can I say? Uh, Not as long as having four 11 year olds to look after, but I, uh, so I sympathise with Chrissy's position. So, Lord Justice Limblom agreed with the decision of the High Court, and for viewers uh, that were tuned in this time last year, uh, we covered this case in the, uh, in the, at the end of the, the summer season last year, just before we all went off for Panto. So it's a decision where a local resident challenged the decision to grant outline planning permission for eight houses Um, Not a million miles, about five and a half kilometres from a European protected site uh, in the Solent, which is called the Southampton Waters SPA. Um, The challenge was on the basis of a failure to properly apply the habitats regulations, which we all know isn't another material consideration. It's a parallel scheme of control to ensure that there is a protection of European sites. And the argument related to uh, the amount of nutrients put into the water, which ultimately goes into the Solent it's a case about poo or rather it's a case about sewerage and its proper treatment and working out what the agreed amount of nitrates are that goes in the water in order to be able to mitigate it uh, so as to achieve nitrate neutrality. Um, Well, there was a a calculation that was undertaken pursuant to natural England's then guidance to work out what the likely uh, nitrates would be that would ultimately go into the Solent. And as we are aware um, if nitrates go in they create algae and therefore they adversely affect aquatic life so the idea is uh, you t- you identify how much what the uh, the nitrate budget is and then you mitigate for it on site and the way you mitigate for it in that this case was to create a wetland habitat on site and the argument was well in fact by applying natural england's guidance uh, that fairham district council had got it wrong and that there had been an underestimate in terms of what the nitrate uh, uh, impacts would be of the proposed development, um, and because of that, therefore the appropriate assessment undertaken by the council as competent authority hadn't been done properly, and that therefore the permission should be quashed. That was the argument that was unsuccessfully raised in the High Court and then unsuccessfully raised in the course of appeal. Um, uh, the the, the decision is actually quite a straightforward and sensible one because um, uh, uh, Lord Justice Limblom has essentially said that this is a matter for the authority to uh, assess. And the mere fact that there was a conflict of expert evidence doesn't mean that you should go for the most conservative of the experts. It just means that it's a matter of judgment for the authority uh, to follow uh, the evidence, uh, subject only to uh, the supervision of the courts in terms of rationality. Uh, and uh, the, notwithstanding that there was following of the Natural England Guidance, and there was some arguments as to whether or not the, the occupancy rates of 2.4 per dwelling was right or not, Uh, the courts were pretty forthright in saying, well, two things. Firstly, uh, following the guidance of Natural England was not not something which was problematical. And secondly, uh, that overall, uh, the very detailed criticisms which were raised in relation to that guidance didn't undermine its accuracy. There are a number of different uh, uh, points which arise from this which are of importance. One of which is it's a rather odd decision because... Although you have a lead judgment from Lord Justice Limblom and a very short, I agree, from Lord Justice Singh, you've also got a supportive judgment from Lord Justice Males. And and if I can commend to anybody, if you want to understand the law in this area, that judgment of Lord Justice Males at the very end about how you apply guidance and the weight that you give to Natural England's uh, advice is really an exemplar. And it's about a couple of pages and it's uh, something I would strongly recommend to you. Um, it also flags up and Logistics Mails flags up the, the fact that Natural England now amended their guidance and widened it so it's beyond the Solent, it's now everywhere. Uh, and self-evidently, as you rightly say, Mary, there's going to be a written ministerial statement on it. There's going to be amendments to the PPG in relation to it. And there's going to be a duty upon uh, water authorities uh, to up their game uh, as recently, uh, as soon as 2030. Um, quite what we're doing in the meantime is a different issue. I'm not sure that necessarily solves the issue. Um, or at least it doesn't solve the issue that we've got in the short term. But this is an important case because this essentially says this is how you do it and it's lawful to do it this way. And providing that you followed Natural England's guidance and you get the right results, then an appropriate assessment can achieve this. Uh, There are all sorts of loose ends to go. Uh, For example, I've got a case currently uh, up in the air about uh, um, uh, emissions to air rather than emissions to water, which ultimately fall to water within an SPA which is yet another area of interest in respect to this. Uh, so it's not gone away, but it's an important milestone in terms of resolving what the law is in this area. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Paul. That was an excellent, succinct summary, if I may say so. Now, we haven't got the lovely Charlie. Um, he was just going to talk very shortly about the case of Barnett. Suffice to say, the inspector liked, liked the site, liked the uh, scheme, and it was a, uh, the appeal was granted. So I think we say no more about that, and we move over to... Sasha and his very interesting interview with Matt. Over to you, Sasha. Thank you very much, Mary. Um, right,
4: Matt, good, Matthew, good afternoon. Hi. And c- can I first of all introduce you? I'm sure you're known to a lot of our viewers, but you are currently the head of the London office for Litchfields. Yeah, that's right. One of the leading consultancies operating in the UK, um, you, you're Litchfield's veteran. I think you first joined in 1997. I'm afraid so, yeah. Uh, which was the year I got married. So you certainly fall into the veteran category. And you've been um, in Litchfield, particularly. You started off in the Northeast. Well, I certainly know Paul and I had the delights of your company and our forays into the Northeast. And you came south and worked in the London office. And you've been in the London office for about 15 years now. Yeah, that's right. And also, this is a bit like a, introduce you into inquiry, except Chris can't touch you, which is lovely. <laughs> um, and you also have been, other things you do, um, you do now, you lead on the strategic land promotion within Litchfields. And also you are, you have advised historically the government in one of their get the great and the good together, you obviously fell into that category and you advised them on potential local plan, mm-hmm. development plan reform in 2016. Yeah, that was uh, LPEX, LPEX. I think that was the sort of last but three attempts at planning reform. Yeah, well, keep on going until you succeed, isn't that an old motto? Um, <laughs> right, what we want to do, I think, because one thing we haven't done on Have We Got Planning News enough or on Hitherto is really talk about housing need and the way the planning system deals with it and i want to just touch start off please can we, can we start off very topically and uh, nicola sturgeon eat your heart out but uh, we have now got a uh, beginning to get this uh, the census results and could you just tell us from a early indication of your consideration and the company's indication what are the effects of this those um aforementioned census results on housing need Yeah, so um,
1: what um, we've now got at the end of of June is the first set of results from the centre. So we don't have all of the information um, and they're going to release that in phases over the next period, uh, probably sort of from October onwards. Um, But we've got those initial results and what they tell us is that we've got a growing country. Um, You know, population has increased and it's grown in every region. Uh, We're an ageing country. uh, So we've got 1.9 more over 65s. Than we had 10 years ago, uh, and it's worth recognizing across all other age groups the increase was just 1.6 million. Uh, and we also know households haven't been forming in the same way that they used to, and average household size has actually gone up, whereas it had been expected to, to fall. And when we then look at how those results compare with what was anticipated. Um, using the projections that inform the government standard method, we can actually see some quite stark changes. So the population is 700,000 lower than was envisaged um, back in the 2014 projections. And some of that's lower international immigration, there's lower life expectancy, and there's also lower birth rates. Um, We've also got 1 million fewer households than we anticipated. So there's 23.4 million households in England uh, that compares to 24.4 million that had been anticipated. So, well, by our rough ready reckoner, we've got um, of that million fewer households. 400,000 of that is because the population is smaller, but the rest is because households didn't form as they were expected to.
4: Wow, gosh, I mean, actually, that's quite quite seminal changes from, from the forecast. So, and what does that? Well, how does that translate into our world? What's, what, in your judgment, are going to be the knock-on consequences for housing need in the forthcoming years? There's,
1: there's, there's two schools of thought very broadly, um, which generally come from you know where people position themselves on the whole question of housing need. So some people say, well, what all of this means is we don't need as many houses as we thought uh, we needed. Um, and some even go as far to say is actually what it shows is there's literally no housing shortage at all because they go the number of houses in England grew by 1.9 million and the number of households only grew by 1.4. So, you know, what's the problem? Um, Of course, that doesn't actually tell us anything, those headline statistics, um, because we don't have a single national housing market. So, you know, building a house in, say, Shropshire doesn't do anything to help the housing need of a young couple in um, Surrey. Um, So, um, you know, we also know that actually the number of second homes uh, it's increased in the UK quite a lot over the past sort of, 10 years. So that explains some of that increase as well. So that's, that's one school of thought. I personally don't think it carries any water when you look at it credibly. Most people say the difference is because younger adults find it more difficult to find a place to live. We do have a lot of concealed households. Uh, there's 1.6 million households contain a concealed household, which is basically 2 million adults most of them under 35, vast majority of them working, who want to buy or rent but can't afford to do so. And that comes from the English uh, Housing Survey. And a household can't fall if it doesn't have a house to fall into. So I think when we look at the census, we need to look at it, not at the national level, but at what's happening in individual housing markets. And when you do that, you actually get some quite interesting themes that tell us a lot about how we should plan for housing in the future. So just by way of example, when we've looked at areas that over the past 10 years only built houses at a rate in line with or below their changing in population, the number of people in each household is increased. So basically it has suppressed formation. Areas that build more homes than their rate of population increase have typically seen a reduction in their household size. So more housing supply does seem to help new households to form. And although there are local variations, our analysis suggests there is a correlation between strong housing supply and the change in house prices and affordability. And particularly in the south of England, places that built fewer homes relative to population growth saw a higher level of house price inflation and worsening affordability than areas that built more. So You know, that does support that basic thesis that building more homes will, over a sustained period of time, improve affordability. And that has been, you know, since Barker, the central tenet of the government's housing policy.
4: Mm. And let's widen the debate by having a discussion. One of the issues that I know all four slash five of us face is why, why does it matter? Why does housing need matter? You've obviously been at the coalface now for many years. In your experience and judgment, when you're faced by that fundamental question, what why does housing need matter and why should the planning system seek to address it? Well, I mean, at its base level, it
1: does go to those 1.6 million concealed households and the future generations of them. You know, these are real people who want their own home in a way that, you know, those in older generations benefited from. And, um, you know, housing need is our way of measuring how many homes we need to allow them to, to do that. Um, I mean, the, the, there's a kind of concept um, among some of them called the, the housing theory of everything, which basically advances the idea that there are so many social and economic ills in the country that e- even if they're not caused by a shortage of housing, they're certainly made worse by it. So, you know, we know that a lack of housing quality and good amount of space impacts on social well-being and the educational attainment of children. Um, That's particularly true in lockdown. Um, It prevents people from accessing good jobs. So it holds back our economy, particularly in the areas that are most productive and innovative. If people aren't close to jobs, it causes people to have longer commutes. That's a big issue for the cost of living makes it harder for young people to start families and really stepping back at a micro level, the Office of Budget Responsibility, um, basically they've told government that a falling birth rate does threaten the long-term economic prospects of the UK and its ability to sustain public spending. You're gonna have more and more older people needing to be supported by dwindling working age uh, population. So really, you really fundamental issues for the country. And then you've also got issues around sort of growing disparity and wealth between, you know, those who own homes or who have families who own homes and those who otherwise will likely rent in perpetuity. So, you know, it just fundamentally goes right the way through society.
4: Mm. OK, and in the light of that answer, I infer that you you think that meeting housing need is a good for the planning system And in, in the light of that. What, what what do you think about is is having a target or requirement imposed whether it be centrally or by the development plan um, is that a good way of seeking to achieve to meet housing need in your judgment? Well
1: I think ultimately the planning system does need some kind of quantification even at a broad level for how many homes and other development needs there are in an area because that's how you make the inevitable trade-offs and spatial choices about what happens and where it goes and so on. I think it's a separate question to, you know, how you set those housing targets and what are the incentives and penalties and in areas that don't plan to address need or how you measure performance against it and respond. But currently in our sort of current system and culture it's only really targets that are driving many areas to confront those kind of difficult, inescapable choices involved in you know, working out how to best meet the need in their own areas. I think if those targets didn't exist, the system and culture as we currently have it would, would, would become even more difficult
4: than it currently is. Mm. Uh, it's particularly um, pertinent and Newsworthy because one of our learned two candidates in the Conservative leadership ca- um, election Said Liz Truss has said that actually should get rid of that, the comment that we've already heard about Stalinist housing requirements. I mean, let's just spend a moment on that. What, what would you say, what's your view as to if requirements were removed, targets were removed, would that, in your judgment, lead to more productivity, more delivery or less? Um,
1: well, I mean, all things be equal, it would, it would mean less. Um, I mean, it's quite interesting, isn't it, what Liz Truss has said. Is this sort of quite populist pop political mantra that, you know, goes back to Eric Pickles and indeed before. Um, but I mean, it's interesting you know, that this trust in 2019 advocated building a million homes around railway stations in the green belt around London. Um, so it's quite a recent conversion, if you like, to um, her current position. I mean, the, in the leadership contest, you had some of the other candidates, Tom Tugendhat and Penny Walden, both talked about abolishing targets and championing brownfield land for incentives and deregulation. But, you know, it probably says something about how targets have become unpopular, but it doesn't really say much about how those incentives and the deregulation will realistically support the meeting the housing needs because we know there isn't sufficient brownfield land in any region on any estimate to meet housing Need mm-hmm. so greenfield development is inevitable at some scale, and without targets, what are the incentives there to actually encourage local authorities to actually bring that land forward through their uh, plans? You know, you'd have to rely on, I suppose, fundamental change of local political uh, culture, um, and it's difficult to see that change in political culture um, uh, arriving. I mean, I'm, I'm no planning historian, but you know, from the stuff I've seen, you know, going right the way back to the 60s, some form of target or requirement or forecast has been the way in which we've made spatial choices about where housing uh, goes. Um, and I think that's, that's really where where the position still remains.
4: And I, I, I know it seems to be, a, well, perceived, it's clearly perceived to be a vote winner amongst the Conservative membership to say, get rid of requirements. But I just wanted your, again, if you were asked for an audit, if we had the, I mean, goodness knows, there'd be more, more. I think there's a race between whether you get even more managers of Manchester United or sector of States for Leveling Up and Communities at the moment. But, but, what do you say about the current system and is it working? I mean, do you think housing delivery is actually working under the framework of the MPPF and the Development Plan system in your judgment or not? Um- Well, I I think we sort of had two phases of
1: it. So we had that sort of localism targets with the MPPF for about 10 years. I would say the first phase of that, 2012 to 2018, you know, we did have lots of long drawn out local plan formulation, really tedious housing, neat debates of which I'm being guilty for at least a couple of them. And, you know, lots of five-year housing and supply appeals, but fundamentally, we have been building 200,000 to 240,000 homes for the past few years, which is quite high in the modern era. And I think a lot of that is down to the planning environment of that period. You know, you did have local plans allocating land, you know, not enough prepared, but they were. You did have a you know, lot of speculative applications, many of them which were granted in areas that didn't have plans. So in a sense, that sort of worked, but it clearly also was accompanied by a loss of political confidence in the system and how long it was taking, um, and obviously had lots of areas, didn't prepare plans. And now I think since 2018, we've basically had a period, I would just say national policy chaos. Um, So although we did have the standard method, we had the housing delivery test, we had at least on paper, the local plan intervention regime, there hasn't really been a sense or confidence that government is putting its shoulder to the wheel in making that system work and therefore, I would say the, um, the, the, the current system isn't working. Um, I, we've seen local plan productions sort of drop off, um, approval rates at appeal seem to be down. I think we're actually heading, we're seeing a drop off in permissions granted. So, you know, I think we're probably not in a good place in terms of that current system. Made primarily, I think, because of the national political culture that's been um, in this sector that we, we've, we've had over the past few years.
4: And what about the development plans as well, because we're now in an era where certain authorities, particularly in the South East, are either being very slow in with development plan production or have actively decided, well, we're just going to store the process for a year, 18 months, two years, because there isn't a political imperative to drive it forward. What, what would be your comparative audit of the development plan system currently as a vehicle for delivering housing? Well, I mean, I think
1: it follows on from what I was just saying. Really, that you know, the, the 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 political reality is what is causing that slowdown in plan making, and you know, there are some areas that have had a historic problem with plan making, and they continue to have a problem with plan making. And a lot of those are areas, with those uh, MPPF footnote six constraints and you know, green belt uh, in particular, um, and some of their plans have. Failed at examination, and um, some of them have, you know, effectively been withdrawn before they've got to examination. Um, and I think what it comes down to is what, whatever the rules and policies are in writing, you know, whatever the MPPF said, and whatever laws the government's enacted to try and improve the system, the the culture of plan making, I think, has broken down, that's. particularly I suppose in local authorities that are a bit ambivalent about plan making and housing delivery and fundamentally I don't think now they believe that the government is politically behind the local plan system so there isn't really a lot in it for um, some of those areas to make the difficult uh, decisions Mm. um, because I don't probably think they feel the government has got their back if they did make those decisions Mm.
4: And, what, and also, in terms of housing delivery, what, what do you think about localism? Has it been a force of of, of benefit or or harm to, to the delivery of housing, in your judgment? Well, I, mean, I think, you know, at
1: its zenith, so I say in the sort of first five years, you know, it probably was a recipe for sustaining delivery of, you know, 240,000 homes per annum. Um, and I think in that sense, it probably worked okay in probably about two-thirds of the country you know and if you look at what's been happening you know purely by measuring housing delivery I mean people have different views about other aspects of the planning system and what it achieves but most regions of the country have sustained rates of housing delivery broadly in line with you know what they estimated to to need um, but it hasn't been as effective as it should be in the three southern um regions or or, or indeed in, in London, where not enough housing is being provided. Um, so I think that's been difficult. And I, I don't think it's a recipe for delivering 300,000 homes per year, if that's the number. Um, and also I also don't think it's been effective in delivering those genuinely large-scale new developments, you know, new towns. And it's sort of militated against, I think, thinking and acting big in some areas. And actually, that thinking big is probably what some locations really need. Um, you know, yeah. Oxfam is a good example of that, you know. Localism is just not set up for grappling with the potential of the arc. And, you know, the government's brief flotation with strategic planning, you know, last year was, a I suppose, a good indicator of that.
4: And and let, just delving into the mechanics for a moment, and all four of us have, have spent many a wonderful hour that you always reflect on with happiness about deliverable. Deliverable is defined in the glossary of the MBPF. Are the contents of the, of what be deliverable and the kind of parameters of the debate right or not? If you were given the power to overnight change the the glossary definition, would you would you take a knife to it and significantly change it? Um, I, I don't
1: think so. I mean, fundamentally, most local plans sort of operate at the margins don't know you know if there's an amount of development needed most plans not all but most plans allocate only just enough land to, to meet it and there's you know quite narrow margins If some sites don't sort of happen or don't come forward so if that's the case there has to be a focus on delivery particularly for the early years to make sure the sites are selected that you know not don't just look good on paper but will actually deliver in, in practice you know we've got an indicator of what happened when you didn't have deliverable tests Um, From the late 90s, early noughties, new Labour government, you know, and basically PBG3 said you only have to allocate land for the next five years. And there's no expectation that it should be deliverable. And what we basically saw was, you know, housing delivery fell to less than uh, 150,000 homes per annum um, over that period. And that was, you know, just a really strong economy. So it was only when Kate Barker, who basically recommended the deliverable and developable tests, as we now know it, that basically has actually... I think put us on a sort of a more even keel in terms of that, and I, I don't see a huge case for, for for changing that.
4: Thank you. Now, can we can we ask for your powers of prediction? Can you walk us through your judgment of the next five to ten years in in this area of housing delivery? What what is your expectation? Um, I'm not going to ask you your hope, but your expert. What do you think is going to happen over the next five to ten years? Um. I'm going to have to say that I think we're in quite a difficult place.
1: Um, You know, the White Paper in 2020 and the the mutant algorithm sort of pulled the political rug from under the current system, which I think was already fragile. Um, And that would have been potentially fine if that reform system had then been implemented, but it, it wasn't. So we had a backtrack on policy following Cheshire and Amersham, You've had then further policy tweaks like the Para 22 of the MPPF around long-term visions, which you know just had a huge disproportionate impact on plan uh, progression. And then it's been made harder by difficult, you know, and local politics and lack of resources. And now we've got water neutrality, um, which I'm definitely not going to get into. But you know, yesterday's announcement is it enough really to unblock things? I would say uh, probably not. Um, and now we've got a Leveling Up Bill. Prospect of a new system from 2024 at the earliest. Adding the current political uncertainty, it seems to me we're going to have a period of about six to eight years of uncertainty and lack of progress in terms of plans, making good allocations and policies for housing delivery at a local level. And it's difficult to see that not
4: being fundamentally damaging to housing delivery. So. Okay. Well, thank you. Right, uh, Mary. Can I ask you for your question for Matthew, please?
0: Well, I, I, that's a terribly depressing point on which to end that interview. Mm. Um, do you mind if I just run through some comments that have been made, Matt? Because you've you've um, engendered all sorts of reactions, and uh, actually, there's a you know a suggestion here that uh, what government should do is focus on um, at least an affordable housing target. Let's let's abandon uh, the idea of, as it were, open market. Um, uh, requirements uh, and let's focus instead on affordable um, housing. Numbers um, is is one idea which uh, is gathering some support. Um, I, I was uh, so I I, I, th- I just throw that out there because um, there does seem to be an increasing uh, disparity between those who have uh, housing and those who have houses and a large number of the population who don't have any uh, prospect of decent accommodation, whether it's rented or whether it's something that they might aspire to try and own through shared ownership. And I, I can't help feeling that the politicians use the wrong language um, and it's very confrontational. And yet, we, you know, if you ask most people about helping people in housing need, if you ask the right questions, perhaps you, 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 one would find that, um, the The audiences are too are more sympathetic. you know wherever you go around the country on the edge of many towns, you find people who don't want change, but you also find people who recognize that today's thirty somethings need help. Um, and we should be focused a bit more on on helping the, the the younger generation. anyway sorry, I'm supposed to be asking a question so <laughs> if if just for the sake of the discussion, if I were. To be uh, looking to uh, challenge the standard method, but um, in in part perhaps based on these uh, new new figures. What what advice would you give to a local authority looking now to bring forward a local plan, not using the the standard method?
1: Yeah, so I mean you've obviously got the para sixty one test. You've got a show exceptional circumstances to deviate from it. Um, that has been demonstrated in a small number of cases, typically where there's been a statistical anomaly of, you know, unbelievable level of tediousness in the sort of underlying ONS data. Um, but I mean I think you know we'll see more authorities challenging it because as the 2014 based projections get older. You know, that window, I suspect, is going to widen in terms of people having a reason for exploring different numbers. I think the key thing I would say is it's, it's not without risks. You know, obviously, the test of exceptional circumstances, you know, is high. And, you know, so far, that's underpinned by a national aim of trying to get 300,000 homes. So if every local authority chipped away for some local statistical nuance, that national objective will be eroded. Um, so I think there's that issue. But I think there's other risks too. So uh, Birmingham has recently come out with its evidence based on housing needs, and it's exploring an alternative scenario of sort of four point three thousand homes per annum, whereas the standard method says 6.7. And what it says is that that report says there may be exceptional circumstances. Um, so may is not massively strong, but anyway. Um, it then says that that, um, that any lowering of the need in Birmingham would have a converse increase in other local authorities in the HMA if that need is assessed consistently. So it's just, you sort of pull at the thread and it kind of unravels the consistent approach across a wider area. And then that means there's a duty to cooperate questions. And you are then relying on surrounding local authorities to... Um, have an incentive to move away from their standard method with a lower number to use an alternative evidence for a higher number to compensate for Birmingham adopting a different approach. So that potentially is opening up risks in terms of progressing that through the, the local plan examination.
0: Thank you very much. Back to you, Sasha.
4: Great. Right. Could I have Chris, would you like to ask your question of Matthew?
2: Yes, thank you very much, uh, Sasha. Hi, Matthew. Uh, we meet quite a few EIPs in, uh, in the geek corner talking about this stuff. Uh, I, couldn't, I, I agree with absolutely everything you have said. And it is absolutely unarguable that the household figures that you're talking about are imbued with suppressed household formation. I mean, it's unarguable. When will the people who act for local authorities, who try to deny all this, stop doing it? Because that's why we're having a housing crisis. People are denying what's going on in the housing market. But anyway, don't get me started. I love the fact that Liz Truss says, uh, you know, they're Stalinist housing targets. Really? What was our theme again? (laughs) Is that not (laughs) you getting started? (laughs) All right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Paul's looking worried. He's worried about the libel now. But look, look, the the the. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, just ridiculous, you know, that's just a ridiculous comment from a politician. But, you know, she's just just trying to buy for electioneering. My question, though, let me get off that. So I cool down. What else does the census tell us? What does it tell us about other areas that we need to meet, such as uh, specialist accommodation for older people? And what about um, school provision? Because that's surely affected by this uh, lower-than-expected set of figures for the younger population, higher for the older.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, um, I mean, clearly just the, the age and population is just a massive issue for the country um, as a whole, and um, a lot of that older population will need specialist examination of, of different, different types, um, which, you know, it's been local policy for a while to make provision, but I don't think it's been fully grappled with. We did some research a few years ago Actually, very low proportion of local plans have proper, engaged policies dealing with what's required at that area. I mean, there was a, a, a last week the government um, published uh, pupil projections, saying they expect a million fewer school children um, over the next ten years, and that basically means there will be school closures in some areas, um, initially primary, but you know potentially due course secondary, and all those schools will have less funding. So potentially big issues around sustaining uh, services. And I think at the local level, one of the benefits of localism in some ways has been a focus on what happens in individual settlements. And what we see is that locally, um, places that have a shortage of housing, all types, it strangles their vitality. So they see a reduction in the number of children and families. Um, If that continues, it threatens the vitality of their high streets. It means schools lose funding, potentially close. And as we face that prospect of an elderly population increasingly with care needs, it's going to put far greater pressure on the social care system, both in terms of accommodation, but also, frankly, working people to provide the care that that elderly population will need. You know, we're already seeing that in the recruitment crisis in the care sector at the moment, which has a you know massive material effect on the quality or well, the ability of some people to get care and the quality of care they receive when they are in that accommodation. So, you know, it's not just a national issue, it's a massive local issue as well, which, you know, I think many local towns um, are beginning to realise but really need to grapple with um, through their local plans. Right. Yeah. Thank you. Uh,
3: Paul? Uh, Thank you very much, uh, Sasha. Uh, Matthew, first of all, thank you for sending me on a number of rabbit holes, which is a favourite place that I tend to go down. So yesterday evening, I not only bought Kermit, but I also uh, discovered online a variety of different things involving Kermit, including uh, Amphibian Rhapsody, which I can particularly uh, recommend to our former guest, Brian May. Uh, And I also discovered that Kermit is named after Kermit Scott, who was Jim Henson's childhood friend who went on to be a professor of philosophy, but was forever known as Kermit. just a disaster. The man ruined his life. And talking of which, uh, th- there's a whole series of questions that have been asked by our, our audience, uh, Matt, that we'll make sure are copied and sent to you in due course. Um, one of the questions which I, I think you, you, it, it's probably fair, fair to, to put to you uh, from Mark Sullivan is whether or not, when you're doing your work in terms of housing numbers, is there a blurring between demand and need? Uh, or are you satisfied that your your work relates to need rather than simply demand?
1: Um, yeah, I think there are some people, not me, who'd happily spend an hour debating that um, sort of distinction. Um, I mean, the government's been deliberately focused on not going down an academic delineation between the two. And you know, fundamentally, they're trying to arrive at a measure in the standard method, which delivers a supply of housing which better enables those who are truly in need to have that need met you know we talked there was a point the mayor made earlier about affordable housing we should only have affordable housing need targets well kind of fine. but how is affordable housing actually delivered in the main it's normally delivered as part of mixed communities alongside market housing funded by the land value that's predominantly generated by that market housing so you know you, you you need a measure that captures all of that and then you allow local authorities who know their ought to know their area best to then set their local targets in the way that they the, the way that they do what we know is that if we have a deliberately reductive this view about housing need you will only get low numbers that will assume that everything operates with a Stalinist level of precision that ensures you don't actually then deliver the homes that are really required. So just by way of example, one of the things the census showed was that the population in Coventry didn't grow as much as people thought it was going to grow. Um, And that had been debated at several local plans over the past few years. And in a sense, the doubters were right. The population hadn't grown as the ONS thought it might have done. But the number of homes that were built in the housing market area reflected the population increase that was expected. Okay, did we provide too many homes? Well, you look at what happened to affordability in Coventry, and it didn't worsen in the way that it did in lots of other areas. So, albeit for perhaps not the same reason, I would say that level of housing delivery has fulfilled a planning function, and address housing need issues within that, that wider area. So I'm you know not in favor of this sort of artificial level of precision that one sometimes gets to um, in, in, in the nature of the debate, but that's thank my you, Matt. answer
3: rather than my hour answer. No, no, thank, thank you for avoiding the hour. Thank you, Matt. Mary.
0: Thank you so much. Well, uh, thank you, Sasha, f- for a really interesting uh, interview and, Viewers, uh, sadly, this means that we have come to the end of series seven. Uh, And so we must thank our special guest. Um, I've been calling you Matt and I I know everybody else has been terribly what I think is quite formal and calling you Matthew. So forgive me if I've been the cheeky one uh, here. (laughs) Matt. But um, we thank you all for listening and we very much hope you have a lovely summer and we will see you again in September. Meanwhile, it's bye from us.
2: (laughs) Everyone, have a good summer.